Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Voices podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. I'm joined today by Felicitas Weber from the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, where she is the project director of NOLA Chain, a partnership between Humanity United, Sustain Analytics, Verite, and the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. Felicitas, welcome. Thank you for having me, Neil. Felicitas, um, we should start by explaining a little about NOLA Chain. Can you explain what it is that you do and how you operate and, you know, how you engage with companies and investors? Absolutely, yes. So now the chain um, is very much focused on forced labor in supply chains. So we focus on supply chains because that's where the risk is typically much more hidden. We focus on forced labor because unfortunately, and I wish it was different, um, it is still prevalent across sectors, uh, across geographies. And our model of change is sort of focused on um, building those benchmarks that really aim to create a race to the top. So we want to increase reputational reward for those that are really doing well and showing leadership, but then also increase reputational risk for those that that continue to, to fall behind. Um, one of the things we also do is to just highlight what good practice looks like, what a path forward for other companies can look like, um, but then also try to use... Um, investors and their leverage to really get portfolio companies to change. Um, and so specifically, we're focusing on uh, the majority of our work focuses on three high risk sectors. So we're looking at apparel and footwear, food and beverage, and the electronic sector. And here focusing on the 180 largest global companies, um, also engaging with them on their practices, but then also engaging with uh, global investors around the world on improving their understanding of what forced labor looks like and what they can do to address risks in their portfolios. So you're making assessments of companies um, across certain sectors, um, giving them a ranking and uh, effectively benchmarking them against others um, in their in their sector. Can you um, perhaps for us explain the methodology and, and give a little more information about how you uh, how you've uh, set up your scoring system and, and the rankings uh, system for those companies? Yeah, absolutely. So the methodology is based on the UN guiding principles to business and human rights. So uh, has elements of that's, that are focusing on commitment, on due diligence and remedy. Um, and we've split that into seven themes. Um, uh, due diligence in particular has a range of different themes. Um, recruitment uh, is a very key theme for us. And, and what we're doing is that we're looking at what companies disclose in terms of their efforts to address forced labor risks. So we typically go through a company's website, look at the annual report and modern slavery statements. We then bring the information back to companies. We give them three months to share more information with us, um, to have a call and provide information on our findings. Um, and we're also asking companies to provide a response to real life allegations. So where we have identified allegations of abuse or typically actually partners have identified those and we include them in our assessment we ask them how they have remediated these particular allegations um, and so in all of those themes including on recruitment we typically look at what supply chain policies companies have but then we're also interested in can companies disclose evidence of implementation so for example when it comes to 
you know, a grievance mechanism so that a company doesn't just say that, you know, grievance mechanisms exist, but also, you know, give us some evidence. Has it ever been used by workers in the supply chain? What are the types of grievances that have come across? Can you give us at least, you know, one or two examples of remedy you've provided to workers? And also give us examples what you've done across sourcing countries and across tiers, because we also want to see um, really systematic efforts rather than efforts that just focus on on one particular sourcing context. Thanks, Felicitas. And, and so it's publicly available information, but then companies are able to add additional um, sort of information. And it's trying to look beyond uh, policies um, to how those policies actually play out um, in real life uh, situations. One key factor um, in a company's rankings, and you've mentioned it, and of course it's very um, pertinent for myself and my program, um, are company policies relating to the way that migrant workers are recruited, and in particular the payment by workers of recruitment fees to secure employment. Um, why do you think responsible recruitment is an important uh, determinant in a company's ranking, and what are the recruitment policies and actions that you um, are using and, and ranking companies against? So migrant workers really, uh, a lot of the time form, you know, the backbone of corporate supply chains. They are in supply chains across different sectors. Um, and a lot of the time, um, also in lower tiers of supply chains where visibility is even lower. And I think we've unfortunately seen um, a vast variety of reports um, of exploitative recruitment practices. So that was certainly therefore a key indicator that we wanted to look at. And um, our recruitment uh, theme has four different indicators that look at you know, recruitment approach. So for example, is there direct employment in the supply chain? Can a company provide information on recruiters? Um, an indicator that looks at monitoring of agencies, but also what is the company doing to um, contribute to change, for example, by engaging with policymakers and what are they doing to then protect migrant workers specifically, but then recruitment fees is really an absolutely key indicator within that theme. Um, and um, here, and I think for many indicators, we have this policy and this practice element, right? So we want to see um, whether companies prohibit worker paid fees in their supply chains. So we're specifically looking again at supply chain policies. Um, and also looking at um, do companies make clear, do they really also have the employer pays principle in there? So do they um, do they make clear who has to pay for the for those fees that it is the employer and not the workers? Um, but then again, we also really want to see evidence of implementation. So we want to see companies going beyond a, a policy in a process and demonstrating what they're doing to prevent such fees across sourcing countries. So do they understand corridors, recruitment corridors? Do they understand the level of fees that are paid? Can they demonstrate that workers are involved in that process, for example, to determine the level of fees paid, to determine the remediation? Do they use ethical recruitment agencies or do they train recruitment agencies? Are they looking at their own purchasing practices and how you know, the fees, the costs for recruitment are integrated? Um, and, and also what we're looking at, you know, are companies reimbursing worker paid feed? Because unfortunately, there are just, um, this is just still happening. So we do want to see a, a remedy for, for workers um, and reimbursement of such fees to workers. 
Um, well, let's let's talk about that um, that last part of it, um, Felicitas. There, there is a focus um, at the moment um, on the repayment of fees to workers um, if they're found to have been paid, not least through the work of um, the consultancy Impact, who've um, produced a set of standards about repayment. Um, and the session that we held on the repayment of fees at the Global Forum was one of the most popular. Um, but do you think the repayment programs are a way that companies can be encouraged to act to prevent fee charging in the first place? Are they just a, a sticking plaster on a flawed system? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think just to confirm as well your observations, we've certainly seen massively increased attention to recruitment fees, right? I think the uh, Top Globe, for example, was a really interesting example where, you know, we've seen high level media attention. We've seen investors like BlackRock highlighting, you know, uh, no worker paid fee commitment in their voting bulletin. We've seen, you know, regulators like in the US issuing withhold release orders because of worker paid recruitment fees. So there's a lot of attention to it. I think for us, we're, um, I guess, not always seeing that uh, translate into, um, into meaningful action. Um, and we, um, I think, I think it definitely can lead to prevention of fees. I think, um, unfortunately, what we're also seeing, and I think that goes beyond recruitment fees, that wherever companies are involved in a specific allegation regarding their company specifically or their supply chain, they thereafter tend to take more action. Um, and I think the same applies for recruitment fees, right? I think it becomes very clear, like the costs that are involved, both the direct costs, but also the indirect costs in terms of reputational risk, in terms of staff time. So I think it certainly is something that can help um, move the needle there. But um, ultimately, we, what we really would want to see from companies is proactive action right like not waiting for these allegations to be identified by media or others but companies taking proactive steps to prevent um, those worker paid fees which is typically actually in line with their own policies right we're not holding them up against a very high third level standard but against their own policies and that's where they're typically falling short and you actually um, produce a report um, specifically to coincide with the Global Forum um, entitled Mind the Gap, and that still highlighted this, this sort of disconnect between policy commitments on paper um, and action on the ground, including, I'm afraid, you know, from members of the Leadership Group for Responsible Recruitment. So what were some of the things that were revealed in that paper, um, Felicitas? Is it, is it just that... Um, uh, it seems that companies aren't following through on those on those principles, on those commitments, or are you not seeing enough policies? I think it is both. So um, ultimately, I think really the implementation bit is the important one for us. But I think it's nevertheless been um, quite disappointing to see. We looked at the 180 largest global companies in very high risk sectors, and only half of them even have a policy, right? Like we at least even at a policy level would um, expect that to be much more higher. But then when it comes in terms of implementation, uh, we're seeing a particular shortfall. There's only 13% of those companies that provided evidence of implementation. Um, and um, as you mentioned, we have also specifically looked at companies that are part of the leadership group for responsible recruitment and those that have signed up to the responsible recruitment commitment in the apparel sector. And um, what we've seen here is that certainly those companies are um, significantly stronger than the rest, but it is still notable that they fall short against their own commitments, um, both in terms of policy, but also in terms of implementation. And it's actually 
um, been quite interesting. We've recently engaged with apparel companies in particular, and um, you know, when we pointed out to them um, these shortcomings and that they had committed to put in place these policies and evidence of implementation by end of 2019, they were quite often seemed to be not aware um, of this and felt that the commitment in itself is, is enough. Um, so it felt like we had to do a lot of sort of additional, you know, education there as well. And it is a bit frustrating that companies don't take stronger steps. And I think it's particularly disappointing at a time when migrant workers around the world have their wages withheld, are in situations of great distress that all companies, but including in particular those that have signed up to these public commitments, aren't taking greater steps to to implement um, their policies and commitments. Mm. I have to agree there. Um, so you organise um, the benchmarks by sector and you, you mentioned the work with the apparel industry. Um, just remind us of the three sectors. And do you notice any difference across industries? Are customer facing brands more likely to be at the forefront of best practice? Yeah, so we are focusing on the electronics, the food and the apparel sectors. Um, I think what's really notable, again, I think the level of action really relates to the level of allegations in the sector. So, for example, in the apparel sector, we've seen a lot of action after um, Transparentum had issued, um, you know, some of their findings in the food sector. We've seen a lot of action following allegations in the seafood sector and palm oil sector. Um, I think in the... I think I would certainly agree that consumer facing companies um, are typically much more um, in the spotlight and therefore typically take stronger action. Um, in the apparel sector, for example, what, what is positive that companies, the sector as a whole is much stronger in terms of acknowledging that they have to go beyond the first year. I think, for example, in the ICT sector, we have many more conversations and much more resistance of companies being willing to look at recruitment fees also beyond um, the first tier. So that's um, another difference. Oh, I think there's always going to be something more to do, isn't there? Um, and um, you mentioned the next report um, will be on um, apparel. Um, when is that due? And is there anything that you can tell us um, that, that we might notice um, in, in that report? Um, a little preview, perhaps. Yeah, so that's coming out at the 26th of May. Um, I think what is uh, exciting that we are certainly seeing good improvements on recruitment. I think still not quite at the level that we would want them to see, but certainly seeing you know, companies stepping up. Um, at the same time, unfortunately, we're also seeing a significant lack of uh, remedy on recruitment fees, but also remedy more broadly, um, which is quite stark for this sector. We're also still seeing a lack of companies that can just show the effectiveness of their policies and processes. So can, you know, there's very few companies that can show us what are concrete positive outcomes for migrant workers in their supply chain based on all the policies and processes they have in place. Um, on the other hand, I think there are some very strong and interesting good practice examples that we're seeing and companies really showing what they're doing in different recruitment corridors, how they're training their workers, how they're increasing internal capacity, um, creating new roles to really support this work. Um, so again, I think there's also a lot for uh, other companies and other stakeholders to look at um, and to yeah, maybe strive towards in terms of preventing such fees uh, going forward, such fees paid by workers. Thank you, um, Felicitas. Um, so, um, Felicitas, thank you very much for your time today. Um, benchmarking is an increasing part of um, the business and human rights landscape and know the chain hold a significant space um, within that. 
Um, as Felicitas has mentioned, the next report um, from Nola Chain will focus on the apparel industry and is due on the 26th of May. So please look out for that. You can find details of that report and other benchmarks that Nola Chain have undertaken um, on their website. Thank you for listening to this Voices podcast from the IHRB. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with all the latest developments from the Institute and from the wider world of business and human rights. Thank you.